Okay. So I am Nikki Holcomb. Um, I am the creator and owner of Simply Bullies. Uh, we've been in American Bullies for about 11 years. We've only been producing American Bullies for about eight. Um, we do a lot in the UKC show scene. We've produced over 100 UKC champions. We have a couple ABKC champions, BRC champions, and we do a lot in sports. Um, the American Bully is the only breed I've ever actually been interested in. Um, <clears throat> I do try to study other breeds a lot more and how they do things, which has brought us to doing things very differently in our program than most American Bully breeders do. Um, we definitely run our program more like AKC breeds may be, I guess, compared to other things, especially how most American Bully breeders, like I said, are doing it. So. So there's a lot of different versions of how the American Bully came to be. Um, they definitely didn't come about as most breeds do, where, you know, a, a group of people brings together a breed club and starts focusing towards a breed. Um, they were more created by individuals. Um, lots of people have said they had a hand in the beginning, so we don't try to say personally that one or the other did it. Um, but definitely at some point, someone was taking Amstaff's American Pitbull Terriers and deciding that they wanted bigger, beefier versions of these dogs and they started breeding towards that. It started kind of evolving from there. And then other people got involved and were like, oh, we really are enjoying how these dogs look. We're enjoying that they're moving away from the dog aggression, that they're becoming more of a companion. And that group of people came together and started creating the registries that we kind of see today. Um, as it progressed, obviously it's been accepted by the UKC in 2013. They were classified under the companion group, which I do believe is, is perfect for them. Um, the American Bully is definitely supposed to be an all-around companion, a dog that you can take out and do whatever your heart desires, you know, whether it be hiking or sports or just hanging out on the couch. They should be an all-around companion and easy to handle, very little to no dog aggression, absolutely no human aggression, um, essentially all the things that you love about most bull breeds without a lot of the, the trials and difficulty of the very high drive or the dog aggression that we see in some of the, the other bull breeds, a little less stubbornness, a little bit more towards the companion companion group. And I do think they fit a lot of different lifestyles. There is a lot of variance in size. We go all the way down to pocket, all the way up to XL. A lot of people argue that we shouldn't have so many size variances, but I think it's ideal because if you're going to choose a dog to be an ideal companion, some people are going to want a smaller dog and some people are going to want a much bigger dog. So I like that there's a good size variance to fit all different types of homes and families and needs. And what uh, variants do you uh, breed and handle? We mostly deal in pockets. Um, we do have a couple classics here and there. Um, we've ended up with one or two standards. But for the most part, we stick with pocket. Um, pocket is where I kind of ended up because I'm a very small person. Um, I'm not even five foot tall. I don't weigh very much. I need a dog that I can easily handle and pick up if I need to. Plus, I feel like it's just an easier size for a companion. You know, they're not in the way. They're not bothering me. I prefer that size. They're great for the kids. Um, so that's kind of what led us to pocket. Um, I do know quite a few fantastic XL breeders, so absolutely nothing against XLs, but we just prefer the smaller guys. And uh, as I know it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you mainly show in the UKC world? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I mainly show in UKC currently. I did show in ABKC and BRC for a while in 2018 and 2019. Um, I do judge for the BRC as well. So I try not to show during the same times. If I'm judging one year, then I, I try not to show that year as well. Um, so we mostly are within the UKC right now. Um, I prefer the 
kind of their offerings of performance sports. You know, they've got a, a few more things that the bully registries right now just are not offering yet. I mean, they have precision coursing and dock diving and weight pull and just lots of different things to do with bullies. And I really feel like bullies should be able to go in and have fun doing any of these things. So we are definitely mostly focusing within the UKC. Um, we definitely are, are seeing a little bit of more support, I feel like, coming from the UKC than in previous years lately as we've been bringing out more dogs and showing that we can have a consistent look. Us and a, a good handful of other breeders have been trying to attend quite a few shows this year and show them that the American Bully is getting more consistent and does have breeders standing behind it to support it. Um, the UKC has definitely altered the standard recently, which is great. Um, they're trying to support the breed a little bit more, and we definitely appreciate that. And do they uh, separate the classes as well? So they just updated their standard to separate bullies into three classes. Um, the main difference is they're not going to have them show separately. They just want judges to be aware of the size distinctions. So they have in the standard now listed pocket, standard, and XL. They did not choose to put a classic variation in there. Um, their main reasoning between that is the classic variety in ABKC and BRC is just a dog with less bone, less mass. Um, they would still put that into standard. And then if it's lacking so much mass and breed type that it doesn't look to be standard anymore or doesn't look to be its breed anymore, then it would just be a dog that lacks breed type versus being a whole nother variety. Um, I think they mainly did that just because it's just variances within the standard. It's not separate classes. So it would be hard to separate those dogs out within judges education and that kind of thing. Um, so they'll all still show together within the UKC, but judges are aware that this little short dog in the front is a pocket and this very tall dog in the back is an XL, which is going to be a great thing because recently over the past two years, a lot more XL breeders have been coming to UKC and showing, which is fantastic. And judges have been looking at their dogs and saying, why is your dog so big? Why is your dog so tall? Oh my goodness, I've never seen a bully this big. That can't be right. So this is going to be a great thing for XL people to be able to have the judge look at the standard and say, oh, okay, your dog can be that big. Your dog is within the standard. Wonderful. So that's a great step in the right direction for them. Can you uh, talk about the differences? Let's say, let's just break it down between, say, the standard and the pocket. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what what is the main difference there and what are you looking for? within your own dog? So really the only main difference that should happen between a pocket American bully and a standard American bully is a height difference. So pocket American bullies should be 17 inches and under for males and 16 inches and under for females. Anything over 16 inches for females and 17 for males would be considered standard. When it comes to breed type, so the head shape, the characteristics, the temperament, the silhouette, the movement, the coat, all of those things should be the same, whether you're looking at a standard or a pocket. It's just you want to see that height come down a little bit. So in our pockets, we want to see a dog that moves the same as a standard does. It should still have great movement, um, has the same head shape, the same presence, the same zest for life, just on a smaller frame. Um, we do see a lot of people as they're moving down into the smaller frames, they might lose the structure a little bit. They start paying attention to the height more than they do the the rear assembly, the front assembly, and then they end up with dogs that are not very balanced. Um, so we definitely prefer a very balanced pocket, a dog that can still move, that's not restricted, that's not too bulldoggy in type, should essentially just look like a shorter standard. What are your thoughts on the 
pocket extreme is that something i i'm not like i i know bullies and i pay mm-hmm. attention to a little bit of what i see but i'm not fully invested in into the breed um like i am other mm-hmm. bull breeds but what um is there such a thing called the pocket extreme i've been hearing that a lot with some breeders um and is it a dis a different class and other registries or what's what's going on on that so the brc does have an extreme class um an extreme would be a dog that is standard height and is just has very extreme features um abkc and ukc do not recognize the extreme variety i think the main reasoning for that is they're not looking to push people towards extreme um i think there's nothing wrong with a very nice extreme bully as long as you're still keeping structure in mind uh, movement in mind health in mind i think that you kind of run down a really windy road whenever you talk about extreme dogs because a lot of the breeders that are specializing in extreme are choosing to focus on can we get this dog as big as possible how much mass can we put on a dog's frame and not necessarily keeping the structure there or the health there so it can be a slippery slope. Um, there are a couple of breeders that are doing great health testing with extreme dogs, so it can happen. They are out there, um, but it's definitely not one of the normal varieties for any registry other than the BRC. Uh, a breed that's kind of near and dear to my heart is the old English Bulldogs. I, I like them, but one thing that is, is interesting about them and is also kind of fun in some ways uh, if done correctly, is that you get d- different variations and depending on what breeder and, uh, and their mm-hmm. variation of Old English Bulldog, uh, it's just interesting to see the different types. But, you know, they use different breeds to make those certain looks. What is, mm-hmm. how is the American Bully going to gain consistency when each breed, uh, each standard size dog pocket standard xl have different breeds within them and how is that Mm -hmm. consistent look going to happen amongst those different sizes going to happen when they're all using kind of different um different sauces to make the make make the recipe so ideally now that the american bully is its own established breed we should be seeing breeders and programs working towards consistency we shouldn't necessarily see them kind of bringing in their own breeds anymore. Um, Outcrossing to separate breeds shouldn't be happening anymore now that we're moving towards closed stud books. Um, I'm hoping that breeders are looking at the standard and choosing to breed towards the standard rather than just kind of their own personal preference of look. Um, I think that ideally in the next couple years, we're going to get a lot more breeders that are looking to have their dogs be consistent, that are not necessarily looking for the next big, for the biggest dog, eye-catching dog. They're going to be looking to make this a consistent look across the board. I do think it could be a little more difficult for us because we do have quite a few different size variations. Um, I think some of that's definitely going to come together and be that some breeders are going to have to say, okay, if I'm going to breed the pocket variety, then I need to ensure that my dog is matching the standard, that I'm not going off with just kind of my own vision or my own lane for these dogs. You know, as you said, in some breeds like oldies, they have variants. You can tell that this dog came from this program because of certain traits that they have or certain looks. And I think that that's definitely going to continue to happen within the American Bully as well. Everybody can have kind of their own traits that are, oh, that that's an SB dog or this is a dog from so-and-so. 
that you can definitely notice and still get consistency where someone can also look at that dog and say, oh, that's a pocket American bully. I've seen those before. Or, oh, that, that's a little bit bigger than a pocket. What would you call that? And you can say, oh, this is a standard American bully. And we've noticed, at least personally, in the past six months or so when we go out, because we go lots of places with our dogs. We go to many different stores, different training outings, different expos. And when we first started attending those things, people would always say, oh, is, is that a, a Pibble mix? Is that a Amstaff? Is that a, an English Bulldog? What, what is that? In the past six months or so, we've always had people coming up saying, is that an American Bully? Yes, it is. Oh, is that a pocket American Bully? Why, well, yes, it is. So people are starting to at least understand the look of the breed. And I think that has a lot to do with that breeders are trying to push for more of that consistency and trying to breed towards the standard. Hopefully in the next couple of years, a lot of the breeders that are trying to just breed their own thoughts or their own visions and not worry about the standard at all are going to kind of fade away. And the breeders that are focusing on consistency can continue to come together. Ideally in the next year or so, we have the national breed club, which will help a lot. Um, I, I think every breed really needs a national breed club or a national breed association to kind of help set the standards for the breed to be a group of people that helps everybody participate and everybody vote so that it's not one registry that's controlling what the standard looks like or what the breeder should be breeding towards. It should definitely be more of a group of people coming together with, you know, bylaws and code of ethics and all of these things that everybody can vote so that the breed can continue moving forward in a consistent way without it being, oh, I like bullies that look like this. So that's what the whole breed should do. It should definitely be more of a group effort. What is your ideal standard compared to the UKC, ABKC, BRC, et cetera? So for my personal program, we do mostly breed towards the UKC standard when it comes to structure and mass. Um, the main things that I used to have issue with within the UKC standard for my own personal program is UKC used to have underbites as an eliminating fault, meaning that if a dog enters the ring with an underbite, they're automatically eliminated. They don't get awarded. They don't get points. They're not disqualified, but they're not, the judge is not going to be looking at that dog. Um, didn't agree with this for my personal program, because as we all know, American bullies have had many bull breeds used to create them, and many of those bull breeds have underbites. We're going to see it pop up. Even if we're breeding towards a correct scissor bite, we're definitely going to see underbites here or there. We may even see a couple overbites here or there. Um, I feel like the ABKC and BRC have the bite standard a little bit more where I would like to focus, which is no more than one-fourth inch of an underbite. I feel like that's a good, it makes sense because we're based on bulldog breeds. It also keeps it from getting too extreme. It's saying, okay, up to a fourth is acceptable, but anything beyond that is a no. I think this is a companion breed, so we don't necessarily need a good scissor bite. We're not a guardian breed. We're not necessarily doing any bite work or anything like that, I think an underbite is acceptable up to one-fourth of an inch. So within my program, up to that one-fourth, we'll definitely not wash a dog out for an underbite. Um, so that's one thing that's a little bit different. I know in the new update of the UKC's standard, they did list that they're going to change it and it be up to one-fourth eliminating. Um, there's been a, a couple conflicts there about it being posted that they are and then it being posted that they aren't. So we'll have to wait till January 2nd to see if the UKC does update that section of their, of their standard. Um, the other update that the UKC did do and confirm is, you know, they kind of took out some of the wording that said that the American Pitbull, American Bully is a natural extension of the American Pitbull Terrier. That was kind of confusing judges to think that the American Bully should be more terrier or more lean or, you know, not have all this bulk muscle that they're actually seeing on bullies. So that will help a lot because I do believe that an American Bully should not be terrier. 
Um, it should not look like an American Pitbull Terrier. It should not resemble an Amstaff. You should be able to tell just at first glance which one's an Amstaff and which one's an American Bully at any time. Um, I think that's a really important characteristic of our breed type. If you can't tell the difference between a Terrier and an American Bully, or you can't tell the difference between an English Bulldog and an American Bully, then the American Bully is lacking somewhere. They should be very distinctly their own thing. Um, so for the most part, otherwise, the registries do kind of align. Um, I think the ABKC is a little bit, their angles are a little bit off for what I look for for my program for front assembly, rear assembly, how they have it worded within their registry is almost mathematically impossible to have on a dog. And that makes it very difficult to breed towards that. So I do prefer the BRC and UKC's front and rear assemblies and how they describe those. But for the most part, they're consistent across the board. We should have a nice level top line. We should have decent shoulder layback. Very few American bullies have very good upper arm, but ideally people should be breeding towards better upper arm, nice rear angulation, good turn to the stifle, uh, pump handle tail that reaches down to the hocks. Obviously tail is not <clears throat> on my top priority list. I would like to see a nice tail, but a little too short, a little too long personally is not the end all for me. Um, nice tight pasterns. I would like to see just tight feet. I know that a couple of the standards say cat feet or oval feet. And while that's a great thing to, to strive for, personally in my program, I'm noticing as we get these dogs shorter and much heavier, if we go for cat feet, they, a cat foot is just not enough to balance a 70 pound dog on that's only 15 inches tall. It just doesn't quite work. So I'm going for nice tight feet that are, you know, maybe not cat feet, but not splayed out, not duck feet, you know, nice, tight, good toes, no splaying toes, no, you know, web toes, nothing like that. Um, and then for movement, I want to see at least moderate reach and drive. Obviously, it's not going to move like a golden retriever. It's not going to move like a Doberman, but I should be able to see a good reach and drive for an American Bully. They should drive good from the rear. I shouldn't be seeing them stumbling or paddling or double tracking. Um, nice movement's really important to me because if I'm going to send a puppy to somebody and they're going to be going on hikes and their dog is paddling, that dog is going to be miserable. They're going to exert so much energy just trying to do a normal walk. And I want to be able to send someone a puppy comfortably and say, yes, this puppy can go on a hike with you, or yes, they can go swimming at the lake with you and them actually be able to do that without being miserable. How did this uh, national breed club come about? And, and, uh, so there's actually, there's actually been a couple attempts at a national breed club, I think four, but I could be missing someone's attempt out there. I apologize if so. Um, a lot of the people that have come together to create a national breed club before have not completed the process solely because it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time from a huge group of people, you know, not just one person dedicating a lot of their extra time, but at least five or six people, really ideally 10 or 20 people contributing towards this and keeping it organized. And it's definitely a labor of love. You know, no one's getting paid to create that kind of thing. You have to come together and do meetings. You have to vote people in. It's, it's a lot for people to do for no reason other than the love of the breed. The other issues that I've seen a lot of the National Breed Club attempts run into is lots of drama, people coming together and saying, I want the breed to be like this, or I want the breed to be like this, and arguing amongst each other when in reality they need to be focused entirely on the breed. So the effort that I'm a part of now, we brought together 30-something people from different parts of the, of the United States, all different breed, you know, different breed programs, there nobody that's too close to anybody else, everybody with slightly different values so that everybody could be represented. We wanted to bring together a group of people that wasn't just 
a group of buddies that was trying to push the breed towards the, what they wanted. We want everybody's views to be heard and seen, you know, XL breeders, pocket breeders, standard breeders, people that are going more for the extreme look, people that are preferring the more moderate look, people that are looking for dogs that can perform and do performance events, and people that are just looking for couch potatoes, because all of those people's opinions matter in how we shape the breed. Um, so bringing together 30 to 35 very different people, and then obviously board members are voted in, and then those board members work towards creating bylaws and constitution and code of ethics and all of the the business workings that have to go behind a national breed club to even be accepted. Um, the registry that we do have to go through <clears throat> to complete the national breed club is the UKC. They're the only registry right now that has a process for that. So obviously you go through them and then hopefully work with other registries along the way as you get more recognition. Um, they do require 200 UKC titles, 150 bred by titles, three generations of consistently bred American bullies. They want, like I said, all the documents. You have to have growth plans and bylaws. Like it is definitely a whole thing because they want to actually understand, they want the members of the group to understand that you're going to be helping push a breed forward. It's not about you or your individual program. It's about where the breed's going to go. Is this standard what everybody wants? You know, this is going to give people the ability to say, okay, I wish the standard was different in this way. What can we do about that? Well, we can have a meeting about it. We can all discuss it. Does everybody feel this way? Does everybody feel that the bite standard should be changed? Okay, let's put it to a vote. And then we put it to a vote. And if it passes, then we can push through that change to the standard. That is power to the breeders. You know, right now, if a, a whole group of breeders feels like something is not quite right in their standard, there's not much they can do about it beyond email into the registries and say, hey, this should probably be changed. But that's just a bunch of people messaging. This is an opportunity to be able to come together and say, this is why I feel like this should be changed. Let's all vote on it. Let's see how people feel. Everybody gets to say, <clears throat> this will also help American Bullies to getting a more strict health guidelines. Right now, there are not a whole lot of breeders health testing. And some of the breeders that are wanting to health test really don't know where to start. They'll go to the OFA website and they're like, well, we don't have any recommended tests on there. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do to get those things. We have to have a national breed club so we can submit recommended tests. Um, it also will give the opportunity for judges education, seminars, um, breed education at Meet the Breed Expos, which is going to help get the breed out there in a more positive light, especially with everything that's unfortunately going on in the UK right now. Um, the world is kind of seeing the American bully in a, a less than positive way, and we want to hopefully push for people to get to see that they are wonderful dogs, they are wonderful family companions, and that hopefully people can see that more if they get out there a little bit more. So a breed club would help the breed in many, many immense ways. Yeah, for sure. Do you think this is the ultimate goal is to uh, entice the AKC, or is it just something to overall betterment of the breed? Right now, I feel like it's more overall betterment of the breed for the sole fact that a lot of the AKC requirements to become an AKC breed, our breed just hasn't reached yet. Um, one of their main requirements is 40 years of documented American bully pedigrees. Really, the breed's not even quite that old yet. You know, it yes, it started more than 40 years ago, but it didn't have consistent American bully pedigrees, meaning these dogs in this four generation pedigree are all American bullies for 40 years yet. So really, we can't even apply for something like that until we're a little bit older. Um, they definitely want to see a National Breed Club with more years behind it. They want to see more consistency in a breed. 
So AKC is hopefully something for the future, but it's definitely right now more about just overall betterment of the breed, trying to help our breed actually get a foothold somewhere before it ends up being washed away by bad breeding practices and negative public outcry. One of the reasons I re reached out to you is because, you know, first first off, I liked your dogs, and, but then also um, uh, the fact that you're active in the in the health testing. So what does health testing mean to you and what does health testing mean to an American Bully program and what does that look like? So personally to me, health testing is extremely important. Um, I don't want to send someone a dog that's going to be their family companion that within two years they're having to put to sleep because of a cardiac issue. We know that these dogs are meant to be the ultimate family companion. So if you're sending this dog to someone to be their entire world and then you're losing it a year or two later due to something that could have been prevented, that's heartbreaking. It's actually heart-wrenching to see, and I do see it all the time, my good friends that have American bullies that are four years old that can barely walk anymore because they have such bad hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia or their spines are separating. And it's heartbreaking to see someone's dog that they used to do everything with not be able to do anything anymore. And it should not be like that. So we decided to start health testing to hopefully give our program the best chance to avoid a lot of these common health issues. American bullies are unfortunately commonly plagued with hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, major cardiac issues. Um, we do have a couple of genetic things um, on the genetic panels that pop up. We're not seeing a whole lot of affected dogs for the major things right now, which is great. Um, we see some patella issues here and there, and all of these things really could be, while they may not be able to be eradicated within the breed, they could absolutely be improved immensely if everybody's programs would just start testing. I think a lot of American Bully programs are extremely worried that if they test their foundation stud and he comes back with a failed elbow, that they won't be able to use that dog anymore, and they don't want to lose these generations of work or all this money invested and that's understandable. You know, they've put their entire program onto a dog and they don't want to lose that. But what I hope that people will start to understand about health testing is it's not necessarily solely about a pass or a fail. It is about the education that you're going to get from that. If your foundation stud has a failed elbow, now you know that he needs to be mostly bred. If, if he is going to still be bred, he needs to be bred to females with passing elbows so that you can be moving forward with that, so that you can be improving the health. Right now, it really is not possible to remove every American bully that has a failed health result because almost every American bully that's been tested has a failed health result somewhere. Um, one of my good friends did a post <clears throat> two years ago asking for American bully studs over the age of two that had passed every single health test, and I think there were four two years ago, and then she did the same post this year, at the end of this year, and there were ten. So the, it's very, very limited amount of dogs that have actually passed everything. So right now, health testing is just knowledge. If we can breed towards better, that will improve things immensely. Um, a great example of that is within our program, we mostly use pin hip for our hip testing. When we hip tested our foundation stud, he got a 67-65, which is pretty loose. So ideally, you want as low as possible on the pin hip scale. But he was our starting point. We're like, okay, we know now we need to breed towards tighter hips towards better shaped hips so then his son when we tested him he was a 60 52 that's a significant improvement already just in one generation then we test his grandkids and now we're starting to get 0.45 41 and then we tested one of his great grandsons at the beginning of this year and we got a 30 31 which is great that's 
immense improvement. You know, that's 30 points tighter. That's a lot better. And that was just in four generations with focusing towards breeding better hips. And if it can be improved that quickly, if everybody worked together to improve their own program's health issues, we would greatly improve the health of our dogs, which is really important because this is a great companion breed. And we're seeing a lot of people want to get interested in them. They want to get them for their juniors to start showing. They want to get them for their families. They really love them. But a lot of them are hesitating because they don't want to spend this massive price tag and then only get two or three years with their dog. They should be getting the full 10 to 12 years of a dog's lifespan, not two or three years of good time and then five to seven years of vet bills. That should not be something that our owners are going through. And I'm hoping that we can encourage more people to get into this. You know, you want your dogs to be healthy. You want your dogs to get to live to their full lifespan. And it's just as simple as getting that knowledge from this testing and breeding towards better. And I think there is a lot of stigma, unfortunately, in our breed community of, oh, there's this group of people that health test dogs, but their dogs don't even look like bullies. And then there's this group of people that won't health test dogs, but at least their dogs look like bullies. Well, if those people would just come together, maybe the health testing people can get more breed type and the breed type people could get more health. We should be working together to better both sides. An American bully should look like an American bully and be healthy enough to live to 10 to 12 years without becoming physically debilitated or passing away from a cardiac issue. So this is definitely a, a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And we're hoping that more education on it will just get people more interested. You know, a lot of people come to me and say, I didn't even know you were supposed to health test your dog. These are people that have been breeding for years and just have no idea this should be a normal thing. And that's okay. We all start somewhere. We all learn from something. But hopefully we can get people doing embark panels and doing cardiac exams and hopefully getting in and doing some pin hip and OFAs. And we should all want to support those people that are starting. Um, There's definitely always a lot of people causing drama if someone starts a health test or does something. Oh, did you see so-and-so's dog didn't pass this or didn't pass that? At least their dog is being tested. You know, you can't badmouth someone for testing a dog if it fails when your dog isn't even tested at all. You know, you should be testing and encouraging the people that are testing to continue to do so. Absolutely. So I think the biggest complaint I see for people that are wanting to start health testing and haven't or have and are not sure if they want to continue is people in general, really would like a black and white answer. They would like to say, okay, my dog passed hips, so his puppies will always pass hips. Or I bred two dogs together that were OFA good, so all of their puppies should be OFA good. It should be that simple. But unfortunately, when you're working with nature, it's definitely not that simple. We may breed two dogs together that have good hips, and we might still end up with a mild because we don't know exactly where that's coming from yet. You don't know if maybe a grandparent somewhere is contributing. So it's not as simple as a black and white that people would love to have. They would love to say, okay, I tested my foundation dog, so I don't have to test anymore. Everybody's good. But health testing is something that definitely has to be done every generation. It has to be worked towards. Some of these scores are a little bit more objective, such as OFA versus pin hip. Um, One of the reasons I like to push for pin hip for people is because it is an actual calculated score. Um, They do pull the dog's hips out as far as they will go, and they measure the laxity of those hips. This gives people, this is an actual measured number of how loose this dog's hips are. That seems to be easier for people to wrap their heads around versus OFA saying, hey, this is a group of three radiologists. They're looking at these hips and telling you, yes, they're deep in the socket. Yes, the shape looks good. Yes, they seem like they're not getting any remodeling from the laxity. I think I'm going to give this dog a good. And then maybe 
the next year, a dog with very similar hips might get a fair um, because OFA is very objective. I think they're both really important if you're wanting to move forward with hip health, but pin hip is easier for people to understand because they really are looking for that black and white answer. And I think that alone makes health testing very hard. Um, the American Bully Breed Club, one of the things that they will be pushing towards, that we're pushing towards, is more education on health testing. You know, once the website is up and going, and this is a little bit further on, there will be information there for this is why we health test for this. This is why we recommend health testing for this. This is what scores are hopefully going to look like. This is something you may run into. This is how you can improve this. Um, we definitely run into some people, too, that will be like, well, I don't need to test my dogs for hip dysplasia because I've been breeding dogs for five generations and I've never had a sign of hip dysplasia. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you've got five generations of your program and they all seem to be doing wonderful, but American bullies and most bull breeds in general have a wonderful pain tolerance. They have a fantastic loyalty to us that they're going to keep going even if they're in immense pain and you'll never know. I've seen dogs personally that I've health tested myself that have had moderate hip dysplasia, hips that just look awful and I never would have known that dog was playing spring pole with me they were running, they were doing precision cording, they had no issues, no question that I ever thought they were in pain. And then come to find out they were in immense pain the whole time. So I don't think it's a good way to say, well, my dogs have never shown symptoms. Test them anyway. What's the worst thing that could happen? Maybe you test them and you find out you were right. All of their joints look great. Or maybe you test them and you find out that actually your dogs just are super loyal to you and have a great pain tolerance. And that's okay. We're never going to move forward if we don't do that testing. You also have kind of the small group of people that will come in and say, well, I don't test for hip dysplasia because I was told it's environmental anyway. There are environmental factors for hips. You know, how puppies are raised in the whelping box greatly affects their hip health. If puppies do not have appropriate traction when they are nursing and when they're moving in those first, first few weeks of life, they are causing their hips to get more lax. So then you have those people that are like, well, if a bad whelping area is going to cause hip dysplasia, then why would I test? Because it could just happen later on. It could. That's part of being a breeder. Ideally, we want to make sure that we're giving our dogs the best chance to get the best scores possible, to have the best life possible. It's about making sure that form follows function. Like you said before, animal rights people are really on breeds such as the French Bulldog and the English Bulldog because they're following what they want them to look like a lot more than what they can live like. You know, they want these English Bulldogs and French Bulldogs to have the nice short muzzles and the nares closed so they can have this look that they're looking for, but then this dog can't breathe. And at the end of the day, you have to remember you're working with living animals. These are living creatures that have to live their life, and we're influencing how that life is going to be lived. Are we giving them the chance to breathe comfortably? Are they going to be able to move comfortably? Because we're in control of all of that. Health testing should be something we use to give our dogs the best chance possible. And ideally, breeding programs should be ruthless. You know, I've read a couple different articles that were from AKC clubs. Ooh, nope, that's too bright. Um, and AKC breeders that have been around in very longevity breeds, such as elk hounds and whatnot, <clears throat> that are saying, I'm ruthless with my program. If a dog throws puppies that are getting torn ACLs constantly, well, then we're going to remove that dog from the program because for whatever reason, we're seeing an issue that we can't health test for, but is causing health issues within my breed. American bullies definitely need to kind of move towards that. We're seeing certain things within the breed, such as torn ACLs or major allergy problems or not being able to breathe, but having a good heart. You know, if your dog passes an OFA advanced echo, but still can't breathe after running around in the yard, we still have an issue. It may not be something we can health test for yet, 
but we need to be aware of these things, especially if we're going to be marketing this breed to be a family companion. You can't send a dog to someone that's going to cost them thousands in vet bills and have them be comfortable with that. It's not fair. Um, it's definitely not fair to the dog. It's super not fair to the family. So hopefully people will be able to get more education before the breed club is complete and the website is up. I always welcome anybody to message me. Another great resource is if if people are on Facebook, there is the Health Tested American Bully Group. That group has an immense amount of breeders that are very knowledgeable on health testing. People that were the first people to health test this breed, people that have researched and done more health tests than you can imagine, that have really talked to different scientists and talked to different vets and really reached out to people to understand health testing. So that's a great place to go. It is a no drama zone. Um, they don't allow people to be attacked there. You can come there and ask the dumbest question possible and people are going to help you because we want to push for the health of the breed. We're not worried about where you're starting. You come come to the starting line and we will help you get there. Um, so that's a really great resource. Really any of the health testing breeders that I've seen are always willing to answer questions. We always want to. I'm happy for people to call me. I'm always happy to talk about health testing. We want people to have this education because American bullies are hopefully going to be around for a very long time. And not only do we need to push for our dogs to be better, but we're never going to be taken seriously by other breeds if we're just worrying about what they look like and pushing for this extreme look with no health behind it. Plus, the breed will eventually fizzle out. If you have dogs that are only living two or three years, you're never going to get anywhere. There's, It's just going to eventually become nothing. Yeah, 100% agree. I, you said it really well. Um, one of the things that I have a hard time wrapping my head, head around again, that statement, uh, but is the breed type to um, what's healthy type. Uh, I've had this discussion with English Bulldog people, people who are kind of more into your exotic type English Bulldogs seem to like the over-exaggerated look. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like color in, in a bulldog. I, I, I'm not against things like that, or I'm not against what they would call the exotic uh, colors in French bulldogs either. Um, but one of the things that ends up happening is these dogs lack a lot of type. And I have an English bulldog. He's 10 years old. Uh, he he's always had breathing issues, uh, his nares and all that sort of stuff. He he wasn't didn't come from a, a good breeding stock or anything like that. So he's just just a pet. But I kept his weight under forty five pounds most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, the older he he's gotten, the less likely he's being able to put on weight. So he's about thirty nine pounds right now. But for me when I hear a dog weighs 80 pounds and is 16 or 15 inches, it, it kind of sends alarm bells in my head. Am Mm -hmm. I wrong? Is there, and I understand you want to balance the bully look with the health, but Mm -hmm. I think says 70, 80, 90 pounds, you're getting to that point where you're, you're, you're going to cause problems that may not even have been there. And I agree. And it's definitely, There's also a balance, I think, with the American Bully because you have to be careful not to step on toes. You have the ABKC that's pushing for a lot more mass than what bullies have right now. They're telling people, you know, if your bully doesn't have this much mass, then it's just a classic. 
Well, what they're considering classic are some massive dogs. These are dogs that are 70 to 75 pounds at 16 inches tall. They're already really as massive as you can get without causing health issues for your dog. And I think there's a really fine line that a lot of the bully registries are kind of towing around right now that breeders are going to have to decide, am I going to continue to follow what this registry is asking for and keep packing weight on my dogs and keep packing, you know, muscle on these joints that really cannot hold it? Or am I going to focus on making sure that my program has function? You know, form follows function. Is my dog able to do these things? And personally, within my program, I've had some beautiful, very typey dogs. Um, Goose is a great example. I always loved when Goose was younger and we went to every single registry and showed because I wanted to hear from the registries that were pushing these extreme looks that he had the breed type they wanted while also showing them, you know, he weighs 62 pounds. He's not 70 pounds. He's not 80 pounds. He can run. You know, he does do this precision coursing. He does do dog diving. He does. He's able to run and play. And this is still the look you're going for without it being 80 pounds. It is possible. And we do the same thing now with Colson. You know, he's only 14 inches tall and he's a lot more dog than some of my dogs. He's definitely a little bit more extreme. I do notice he has a little bit of a harder time keeping up with them sometimes just because when you've only got 14 inches to work with and you're already 50 pounds, that's that's a lot of weight to be carrying around. But he can still do it. He still goes to the creek and runs and plays. He still does the coursing. You know, I want to be able to see that type and then still be able to function. I think a lot of breeders need to look at their dogs and question, can my 80-pound dog consistently every day go run a precision course and not be exhausted and in pain? Because if the answer is no, then it's likely too heavy. You're putting too much weight on their joints. And a lot of these bully breeders are not even realizing that they're doing this because they're keeping the dog until it's two or three years old. And they're saying, well, he does fine. He moves fine. He runs and plays in my backyard. But then at eight or nine years old, how is this dog doing? Are they still fine? There are bullies that are carrying that mass beautifully. Um, one that comes to mind would be Alex Ferrero's Lucky Luciano. Um, I've seen him in person many times. He is very typey. He's got great muscle mass. He's a very big, bulky dog. And he's still at 11 years old, is able to run and play and jump and hit that spring pole just as hard as he could at two. He is a good example of a dog that carries type and can still function. And if your dog can't uphold that standard, then you haven't reached what you should be doing. And I think it's like I said, without stepping on too many toes, there's definitely a really fine line that the registries are skating down right now, pushing for this breed to be as big and as heavy and as massive as it possibly can be without questioning what that's going to have long-term effect. You know, what is this going to do to these dogs? Is it going to cause health issues that we didn't see before? Are we going to have dogs falling apart even if they have good hips and elbows? Are they going to be falling apart by the time they're four because they're carrying around 80 pounds their whole life? Um, it's definitely a hard thing that we see all the time. We see people tell us all the time that some of my favorite dogs in my program, they're like, that's a really terrier dog. And I'm like, you know, I've had this dog right beside terriers and it really is not a terrier dog. You know, this dog was right beside an American Pitbull Terrier two weeks ago and it's, it's not a terrier dog. It's actually very bulky and massive compared to this breed that you are saying it's like. And I like that she can still move, you know, and I think that one of the big things that the breeders that are looking for function need to do is they really need to show up at these things where there are sports. You know, we took, there were four American bullies at the UKC Total Dog Invitational. Um, that was Foster, uh, Jonathan Foster's dog Watson, and then three SB dogs 
were there. And a lot of the judges were like, you know, when we seen that bullies were coming, we didn't expect them to be able to do any of this. We figured they might excel at weight pool, but we didn't think they were going to be doing nose work or obedience or rally obedience because they're just not that kind of breed. But they did all of those things. And they should be able to. A bully should be able to go in and do rally obedience or go in and do agility or do weight pool. You know, they may not do it on the same level that a herding breed is going to do it at, but that's okay. They should be able to get through it. And there's definitely going to be a big split, I think, over the next couple of years between breeders that are wanting breed type, but not huge, massive, overly extreme breed type. And the breeders that are going to keep following where the registries are wanting to go and packing on as much type as possible with no concern for the health that that's going to cause to the dogs. Hopefully there could be a balance because I think right now there's a lot of instances where a single registry gets to control where this breed goes or a single program is really carrying the whole trends of the breed. And while in some things that's great because if that program decides to do something wonderful and they're carrying all the trends, then people are all going to do that. But it's also a very negative thing in the sense that they're probably not thinking about all of the long-term effects that this could have on the breed. There needs to be an organization, a group of people that can keep the breed accountable to being healthy enough to be around for the 10 to 12 year lifespan, that can keep them accountable to temperament. You know, one thing we really haven't touched on much yet is temperament. We're seeing all these dogs in the UK today actually being put to sleep just because of how they look, because of some a handful of dogs that had the incorrect temperament for the breed that mauled people, caused a lot of deaths, and now an entire country has banned these dogs and thousands of dogs are dying because temperament was not kept in the former, you know, in the form in mind, basically. Um, I think it's really important that people think about these things and it's going to be easier for an organization to think about these things while it's not one person worrying about their solitary program or one person worrying about their favorite stud dog, you know, it's a group of people that say, okay, we all agree the American bully should have this temperament, should be able to live for 10 to 12 years, should be able to pass these health tests, and let's all push towards that. They need that protector of the breed, essentially. Somebody that's not being, there's not for profit, they're not making any money off of registrations, they're not hosting shows, they're not controlling any of that, they're only there for the breed. And I think that that's going to be the only way we can kind of protect the breed from a lot of the bigger trends that are coming out right now. The kind of the issue that I see it is, is that some, what's really hard is that the, at the base of these dogs, I have to wonder if, especially kind of your, your different standards, like your XLs and stuff, was the originators of these sizes, were they conscientious of, of the types of dogs that they used? Uh, to put in them and were health and temperament uh, at the forefront of their mind or was it just look? And I think unfortunately when you when you got these composite breeds and you're not looking at the overarching picture of, of, of everything that you're doing, you wind up with bad temperamented dogs and mm -hmm. negative health tests. Going forward, I think all of this needs to be at the forefront of every breeder, bully mm -hmm. breeder's mind is that you want a dog that's healthy. You want a dog that has a good temperament, that he's going to be a good family companion. Sure, not be a pushover, not be a wimp or anything like that. But at the same time, that's going to be a, a healthy, happy uh, dog within its its family and in, in its own um, pack with other dogs. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of hard for me to, like, uh, 
we would have to go to ground zero and that I, at this point it's not worth going there but that just goes into my head of like i don't think what happened in the beginning there were conscientious people with you know uh, a very intelligent mindset like you have and other people in in the breed that are trying to better it seem to have so i i applaud you for your efforts on that level let's get away from from that sort of thing, let's talk about what you partake in sport-wise and, and the activities and and uh, how has that been uh, and how have you been, how has the bully been um, uh, treated within those communities? So we've been competing in sports for almost two years now. We started pretty, pretty basic doing just precision coursing. There's nothing difficult about precision coursing. Um, it's just a really tiny version of lure coursing, very simple. Um, when we first started showing up at those type events, we had a lot of prejudice against it. There were a lot of people that didn't want to stand near the bullies because they were like, well, these bullies are going to get really amped up and then they're going to be trying to grab other dogs. We don't want them near them. They would have us run last or very first or just lots of different things. Or a good example is my brother has a, a, a little bitty 43-pound American bulldog. Okay, she's adorable. She's the cutest thing ever. Her name is Happy. She's happy. Like, she's so cute. Um and Happy was over there with the precision coursing, and it's her favorite sport in existence. If you just mention her lure, she's looking for us. Oh, my goodness, we're going to play that game? I really like that game. And she was over there beside a lab, cute little lab, you know, being held by a little junior. And the lab is just barking his head off, super excited, absolutely amped up. So then Happy looks at the lab, and Happy's like, oh, we can be excited? Okay. So Happy's jumping up and down, barking, just having the time of her life. And people were literally giving her the worst looks that I have seen. They were like, oh, my God, that bully is out of control. And the lab right beside her doing the same thing was not getting the same looks. Like, it was fine that he was excited for this game, but it was not fine that the bully was excited for this game. So we've seen, you know, from as simple of a sport to that to as complicated as the obedience ring, we've definitely had to keep our dogs to a higher level. Um, our dogs have to – let's see if we can get that to work. Maybe. Maybe not. I have to move over a little. There we go. <clears throat> We've had to keep our dogs' obedience and how they act outside the ring. We've had to be more conscientious about that than maybe a lab breeder would have to be. We've had to prove everywhere along the way that we're not just doing sports because we want to look cool, that we're doing sports because our dogs enjoy it. And over the course of the two years from that first, you know, experience where we were looked upon really negatively to our most recent experience, which would be at Total Dog, it was very different. You know, people understood that American bullies could do these things and that they were not going to lash out. They expect really great things from them now. And a lot of people have advocated towards that. Um, you know, Grand Champion Watson, which is owned by Jonathan Foster, he has competed in all kinds of different performance sports at AKC events, at ADBA events. He's really taken that dog pretty much everywhere that a sport is offered and shown that not only can the American bully compete in all of this, but it can do so happily and stable and just hanging out right by the ring. When you meet him, he is absolutely the most calm and cool dog in existence. He just hangs out right there while all the other dogs are acting a fool. And he's a great example of the temperament for that reason. Um, and that's what we want to see. You know, we like to take our dogs and do things like weight pool and dock diving and, even the obedience and the rally obedience, because they can do these things. And we get people all the time that are like, oh, your dog does obedience? Um, I bet that took you a long time to teach them. Because there is a, a common feeling that bullies must be dumb. They must be, 
you know, not very biddable. They must not be very smart. So how could they ever do obedience when in reality, they're really shortchanging the breed by thinking that they're dumb. They're wonderful dogs. They're super handle oriented. They may not be as quick to things as a golden is or a poodle is, but they try unbelievably hard. You know, the way that they try for their owners is unparalleled. They absolutely will do whatever it takes to do it for you as many times as you ask, as often as you ask. And I feel like that needs to be out there more. You know, you see kids getting frustrated because their dog's giving up. And juniors, that'll never happen with a bully. The bully is not going to give up. It may not get it right, but it is definitely not going to give up on you. So hopefully over the past two years, we've helped change those perceptions. We've definitely felt a shift, you know, from over that two years from people really being prejudiced against the bullies to people being like, oh, man, the bully's here. I can't wait to watch her run. Or, oh, that bully's going to go off the dock next. Let's all watch. And we've made lots of friends in different breeds, you know, by letting them know that we're serious about this breed because you're right. It was not created with all of these things in mind. The people that first started creating this breed were just running after a look and a fad and the money that came with that. And they just kind of took that and ran with it. And in some ways I'm glad they did it because it gave me the breed that I love so much. But in other ways, I do wish we could go back and be like, did you even think about the dogs you were using? You know, when you were building these XLs, did you use guardian breeds to get this size and not even consider the fact that this is a companion breed you know did you consider any of these things and they didn't which means that as breeders now we have a lot of responsibility to consider these things we have to bring forth our best examples of our breeds and be ruthless with our programs in the sense that if we see a bad temperament or we see a dog that is maybe going towards kind of those older dog aggression thoughts or being a little bit too drivey that we try to move away from that because if we're going to say that the American Bully is a companion it should be able to participate in all these sports and be stable and happy and hopefully people will see a lot less prejudice but if you go out to a sport and you do see prejudice try not to take it personally you know let your dog be on its best behavior really enjoy the sport and people will come around because they definitely did for us people see us coming or see us entered and they're super excited to watch our dogs compete and that's really special. Very cool. That's very cool to hear. Um, can you talk about like the future of your specific program and what, what are you striving for and, and what does it look like in the next five or 10 years? So I've been working on my program for a long time. So a lot of the things that I wanted to accomplish, we kind of have, um, we have a pretty consistent look that I like that I'm happy with. Um, I do want to keep improving temperament-wise. We've noticed in the past two years, one of the things that I'm personally focusing on temperament-wise is the prey drive. Um, It's a very fine balance having a dog that has enough drive in general to compete in sports that you want while also trying to kind of eradicate that prey drive to where they're wanting to chase cats or they're wanting to chase the neighbor's chickens or, you know, those type of things because people are wanting these dogs as companions and most people have a cat or maybe their kid has a guinea pig or whatever it may be. And that's one of those things that's important to me to try and focus away from the prey drive so that we can comfortably place an American bully with a cat and know that dog is never going to hurt the cat because these things are important to pet families. Um, Another thing that I'm trying to focus on is I, over the past year, I've focused a lot on trying to get our health where I want it to be. And we've dialed back a little bit of type to ensure that I can get the health that I'm hoping for. Next year, we'll bring in some more of that type and we'll see, did we keep the balance? You know, did we keep the health and the function that we wanted 
while still kind of getting that look that we would like. And if not, we'll have to pull back and go back to the drawing board because ultimately the health and longevity and temperament of my dogs is foremost important. And I just want the type to be coming along as we go. As long as it looks like an American bully, I'm content. Um, we also would hopefully like to see our dogs in more homes that are maybe not American bully homes, you know, people that have never had an American bully before. If I could place puppies with those people, that would be my goal. I want more people to get to see what the American bully can do. And I want to move away from the people that are kind of dragging the breed down. I don't want to stay within the culture that it's got right now. We don't want to play towards the fads or the big money. None of that matters to me. You know, my dogs need to be healthy and functioning and great companions. And the more people that we can show that, the better. Um, so hopefully we can keep focusing towards that. We've had a couple of title goals this year. We focused on a lot of our co-owns and focused on titling out entire litters. Um, one of the things that a lot of people pointed out to me that kept sticking with me is they're like, well, American bully breeders that do title their dogs, they title one dog out of a litter and they're like, okay, call it done. They're like, it's not very consistent if only one dog can earn a title. So this year we focused on taking a title, a litter of four and a litter of 10 and taking all of the full rights puppies within those litters and titling them. Um, out of the litter of 10, we pet homed five and then we kept five within co-owns or full rights homes. And out of those five, four ended the title, ended the year titled and multi-titled at that. None of them are just titled in one thing. They're multi-titled in all kinds of things. And then the litter of four, we titled three out of four. And the last one is one of my girls that I have, and I just haven't even started her yet. So being able to show that it's consistent, that it's not just a one-off, that this one dog is amazing, that the whole litter can be amazing, or that mo the majority of a litter can be wonderful, to try and show off that consistency is important to me going into the next year. We're going to continue to try to do that so that people don't think the program's just a one-off. There's one healthy dog or one dog that titles nicely or one dog that competes nicely, that it's something we consistently strive for and produce. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. One of the things that you kind of touched upon it a little bit that that um, I'm more and more interested into the, uh, the business side of, of breeding because I am a big proponent of of the free market. I think that if you're going to um, get involved in livestock, you have to have the resources to be able to continue to breed successful livestock, whatever that livestock may be, horses, cattle, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't make any money and if you're all your time and your effort and your blood, sweat and tears uh, goes into something with no reward, um, the likelihood of you continuing or somebody positive continuing with such a thing is, is very limited. And when you have a family and you add other responsibilities to your table, you know, um, you have to be compensated for, for your efforts. And so to me, there's a fine line of, uh, you know, providing a, a good quality dog and at a decent profit than providing a not so good quality dog, but for high prices, there is just kind of, it's, it seems like the, and this is dog breeding, the dog breeding world in general, it's hard to, to balance that sort of thing. How do you balance the market with the trends and all of those sorts of things? And, 
and I think a lot of things that um, isn't going isn't going through people's mind is they're not into into the long play, and that's mm-hmm. why I think you're seeing dogs that are being sold for fifteen twenty thousand dollars, and then maybe even good quality dogs are not being um, in getting into the hands of uh, people who aren't maybe serious dog breeders or, you know, it just seems to be kind of a breeder's market. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, you want, you want people, more people to get hands on these dogs that aren't necessarily into that world. And I think that's a good idea because to me, that's the longevity of a program. And I don't think profits or, or anything like that need to suffer. You just won't get that big price tag in the beginning. It just, over time, you're going to get repeat customers and repeat buyers, and you're going to have quality dogs, and your dogs are going to be titled and championed and all that sort of thing, and people will come to you anyway. It's kind of like the long play. Mm-hmm. But I think there's this kind of that that fine line. How do you balance the business side with the ethical side, and what does that look like for you? So I think when it comes to breeders of any breed, a lot of people – have this misconception that an ethical breeder, a responsible breeder should just make no money at all, that they should be so in the hole that breeding dogs is not only a labor of love for them, that it's a financial burden. And this is being pushed by so many people and it's really an unfair viewpoint. You know, if you're expecting someone to put in their blood, sweat and tears and their time, their 24 seven time to not only ensure that their dogs are well cared for, and well-trained, but that the puppies are, you know, brought up correctly and all of the health testing and the traveling for showing, it's not fair to expect somebody like that to put in all of that effort and money and just never break even. You know, I don't think that's a fair concept. I think that it, I'm a big advocate for that breeders should be allowed to make money. You know, you're not going to make get rich off of this. It's not a get rich quick scheme, but you should be at least breaking even. And in the later years of your program, hopefully you're seeing at least a slight profit margin. Um, It's definitely not, like you said, from a business standpoint, if we take out all of the emotion, it doesn't make any sense to continue a business if you're sinking your entire life while doing it. Um, I definitely think within the American Bully, especially, there are lots of people that think these dogs are an immediate get-rich-quick scheme. They think they can buy a $2,000 female pup and pay $5,000 for a a stud and then get $30,000 to $50,000 off the litter with no no problems, and they think they're going to buy their next house off of one litter. And it, it shouldn't work like that. Like you said, there needs to be a, a growth plan, a longevity plan for your program. How are you going to fund these breedings? You know, are you getting in over your head having 10 dogs or 15 dogs if you can't afford to care for those dogs? Maybe dial back and make sure that you can keep your profits in the same margin as your expenses. Um, so for us, <clears throat> it's more important to me, like you said, to, to play the long game. I want to see more of my puppies in homes that are, are pet homes or are people interested in the breed. I do think that a lot of people are surprised by the price of American Bullies just in general. They're definitely not a cheap breed. They're not a dog. You can go out and get a nice dog for $1,000. Um, we place our puppies from, and these are pet only puppies, for 3000 to 3500 never less. You know, the, that's the bare minimum price for a pet only American Bully. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you'll see a lot of people that are like, oh my goodness, you're price gouging. But when you consider the cost of breeding these dogs responsibly, the consideration that most of them need C-sections, that they need space and time and all the money it takes to title and health tests and the fact that they need 
10 to 15 health tests versus other breeds that need one or two, $3,500 is a very fair price. And some of the, some of what I think is important from a business standpoint to get breeders to do is to invest in your program, but also invest in your buyers. Your customers should understand why $3,500 is a good deal for a bully puppy. They shouldn't feel like because they're paying $3,500 that they should be able to make money off their dog. They should feel like they're paying $3,500 because that breeder ensured that in every way possible that puppy had the best start in life. They gave them starts on training. You're there for them. They have a life support for life. You know, these are important things that they should understand so that you can continue to just exist. You know, there's so many people out there that are having a litter and then just peddling the puppies away for $1,000 a piece. And they're able to do that because they're putting nothing into their dogs. Absolutely nothing. And then you have the people, like you said, on the other hand, that are selling one or two puppies at $15,000 to people that probably don't need that dog in their hands in the first place. Um, So for my program, my goal is to ensure that I am producing dogs that stand the test of time, that have the longevity and the health, that we're marketing towards the family homes that I would like for these dogs to go to, and that we're providing a service that is quality enough for them that they are comfortable paying that $3,500 price tag for a pet. Um, And I think that's one of the most important things. If your puppy buyers feel like they got what they paid for, then they're going to be comfortable in that price. And that's going to give you, like you said, the longevity. That gives you the word of mouth. They come back and purchase another puppy from you, or maybe they send their boss to you for their next puppy. That, That word of mouth is invaluable. It is absolutely the most important thing that you will get. There's no form of better advertising than the word of mouth. And it can go both ways. If they pick up a puppy from you and it's just a puppy in a folder, and the puppy is absolutely rambunctious or absolutely terrified and has nothing with it, they're not going to feel like they got as good of a product as if they picked up a puppy from you that is well socialized, that has, you know, experienced some things, that's confident, that came with vet records, that came with microchip, that came with its ears already cropped and healed, you know, that the breeder is there for all your questions, that came with some pet insurance, you know, these things are important to people. You're going to go with the more complete product. And I think if you want to break even or make a profit, then you need to ensure that you're investing in your program and also investing in ensuring that you're providing that good product experience for the buyer. I'm not a breeder, so it's, it's easier for me to say. uh, And I know that I would, if I was, I would probably have a little bit of a different opinion or harder time uh, taking my advice. But one of the things that, that I see is that a lot of times breeders are kind of stingy with their their top quality dogs. They're really quick to get rid of the pet only dogs, but they're not so quick to get those really good dogs out there in other people's hands to show off their program. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of hoard them and I don't know what effect that has on a program or not, but it just seems like uh, if you're the betterment of the breed and if you really are a preservation breeder, um, you would kind of want your dog, your, your top quality dogs, not always to be just in your hands or your small circles hands. You want your dogs to get out there to show the best representation of the breed and your program. And it, you know, it's, it's not only it's, is it better for the breed, but it's great marketing for your program. And so uh, what's your thoughts on that statement? Do you think I'm way off base or do you think uh, there's a happy medium or, or what is it? So I definitely think you're actually more spot on um, than most people are willing to admit. 
<clears throat> the the fact that most bully programs are keeping all of their best productions to themselves and peddling away the lesser quality productions, especially the, the programs that have a litter of 10 puppies and they keep the five best ones with them and their friends. And then they sell the other five to breeders and say, Oh yeah, these are great. That is crazy. You know, you're sending pet dogs off to represent your kennel and you're holding on to the best stuff. And I think it's a very opposite way to do things. We as a kennel try to push our best program productions to more people you know we sent up up to washington last year that i knew was going to be one of the best males in the litter i knew 100 that i was sending off my top pick puppy and i didn't mind even a little bit because i knew that the opportunity for him to be across the united states to really show what our dogs can do and what he can do in sports and going to such a great home i didn't hesitate even for a minute i did place him in a co-own so that i had some access to him back but I was happy to send him off and I would do it over and over again. You know, we try to place our best puppies to the best people. And some of the way that I try to do that is I usually like to get to know anybody that's interested in American bullies. If I find someone that is interested in showing an American bully that is actually going to show up, go to the shows with us, you know, let us help you, let us figure it out, then I'm going to place a dog with that person. And I've done it many times before. We co-owned a female puppy out last year to a, a lady that had not shown in UKC or any of the bully registries, but she had shown an AKC as a junior and she was super interested in getting back into it. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take a chance. We'll co-own a dog. You know, you pay my co-own fee. I'll send this female to you and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, she spent all last year doing everything she said she would. The dog is beautifully trained. It's been at to many shows. It's almost titled. She's shown up. She listens when we talk. She calls when she has questions. So then when she contacted me, it was like, I'm interested in what you're charging for that female that you have available. And I was like, she's yours. Come get her. You can have her. You come get her. She's 100% yours. And she was like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, you did everything you promised me you would. You took one of our dogs and brought it to the level that I want to see it at. And you showed what they could do. And that's valuable to me. So I think placing your best dogs out is a great plan, especially if you can ensure that they're going to the kind of people you want them to go to. You know, there's lots of people that will line up for a free puppy, but how many of those people that are lined up are going to attend the shows and put in the health testing time and actually listen to you when you talk and actually listen when you say, hey, I need you to read this book because it's important, or I need you to listen to this podcast because it's information you need to have, or I need you to be present for this meeting because this is something we need you involved in. And those are the people that I want my best dogs to go to. So I will absolutely place out top picks, top priority dogs, two people because like you said it's it's a fantastic advertisement you know we get countless people that'll message and be like I just met so-and-so at a show and I loved that dog so much and I heard it came from you and those people are the ones that you want you know that's you want that to be out there as an example of your program if you had all the money the time and the space and all the help and the the greatest uh setup kennel setup that you you could you could have what would be uh, the second breed that you would you would uh, handle and, and breed? So this is actually a going question in my family because, you know, my family is the one that, and my kennel partners, we are the ones doing all of the dogs. And they ask constantly because my brother loves poodles. Um, my husband likes skipper keys. They're always like, what would be the next breed? If we got another dog, what would it be? And I'm like, you know, I, I have a really hard time with this question because I spend a lot of time with other breeds I spent a lot of time learning them, especially whenever I became a judge with the BRC. I had to go to, to French Bulldog specialties and English Bulldog specialties and really put hands on all these different breeds. 
And whenever I steward for the UKC, I do the same thing. We ask all these questions. <clears throat> and I'm fascinated in lots of different breeds, but I have not yet found that other breed that ignites the same fire as the American Bully. I don't know that I would ever have a second breed. And if I did, it would have to be something similar. It might be a Staffy Bull. Um, maybe even like I have a, a fascination with Teddy Roosevelt Terriers. I think they're the, the cutest little muscled terriers in existence. Um, but 100% knowing which second breed I would ever get into, I don't know if I would. I've dedicated a lot of time and effort and missed out on a lot of things in my life to ensure that I give everything to the American Bully. So I don't know that I would ever do that for another breed. And I feel like it's a disservice to another breed if I'm not willing to put in what I have for this breed. So, and my daughter actually asked me because she's into corgis. Those are her favorite things. She absolutely wants a corgi so bad it hurts. Every birthday we ask. <clears throat> and I've told her, you know, I want a dog for you, <clears throat> if we ever get you a corgi, to come from someone that's just as passionate about corgis as I am about American bullies. And if I couldn't own an American bully, if they just ceased to exist, if it was not a breed that it was even possible to have anymore, I don't know that I would be a dog breeder at all. I would still be a fancier. I would still maybe judge or attend shows, but I don't know that I could put the dedication and love that I put into my American bullies into any other breed. Um, and that may change as I learn more and become older. I'm not even 30 yet, so I've got a lot of life to live still. But for now, there's not a second choice solidified. I like that answer. I like that. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch that you would like to say now? Or if, if, if not, we can wait till part two. Yeah, I think there's there's always more talking I can do about American bullies. There's so much about the breed that most people just don't know or don't get a chance to know. I think it's really hard to be able to see what the breed really is and the potential it has when you're trying to see through, like you said, this very negative culture that surrounds it. Um, one thing I would try to tell people is that despite how it looks from the outside, the American bully community is actually very inclusive they're very welcoming. Um, some of them are really rough around the edges, but they're the give your shirt off, give you the shirt off their back type people. You know, they're they're very welcoming in all the registries. So, I would want to see people get out there, try to find. If you don't find the people that you like at one registry, go to the next one. Somebody will be the person that you vibe with, that you can learn from, that you can help. And <clears throat> the more people that get involved, the better chance the American bully has of going in the right direction. <clears throat> 